Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for our time to get together, to sit under your means of grace so that we may be more conformed to the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, as we look at the book of Joel, you'd help us to think well upon the biblical text. Help us to think clearly so that we may know what you have said. We, pray, we ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. It's uh, unusually warm here for January, but I'm, I'm kind of liking that. We're going to be looking at the book of Joel. And um, we left off last time where we never got into any of our slides because we had such a good discussion. And I just want to thank this congregation here for doing a theology with me and Bob and learning the Bible and having such great discussions. I really enjoyed it. I know Bob does, and um, we're all profiting by what you say and how you comment and the questions that you ask, so thank you for doing so. Well, today we're going to be starting with a, the book of Joel and an introduction. And remember, the book of Joel I mentioned last time is a minor prophet. And it's, he's not a minor prophet because he's minor in significance. Remember last time I said that when you look at the English versions, if you take the typical English Bible, and I don't know what the typical English Bible size is, but the longest minor prophet is Hosea, which is 14 pages in your typical English Bible. The shortest major prophet is Daniel, which is 24 pages in your average English Bible. Uh, Jeremiah is the longest major prophet. That's 97 pages in your average English Bible. So the point is the minor prophets are called the Twelve by the Jews. That's how they put it in their canon. It's the book of the Twelve. But we in evangelicalism call the minor prophets because they are just smaller, shorter, and that's the only reason. Now, the term Joel, his name, means Yahweh is God. And it's a very fitting name, as I'm going to be laying out for you today, because Joel as a prophet... His task is to get the Israelites, particularly Judah, back to worshiping God alone. And what you're going to learn in the book of Joel is just how problematic syncretism is. Syncretism is where, yes, we may have our God, but we add to it another religion or another God or gods as well. So his name itself means Yahweh as God. Now I want to begin today by talking about the dating of the book of Joel And I'm going to lay out in the next slide why I think the dating is important for the interpretation of the book. But the dating of the book can really be divided into two camps. So today, as you look at scholarship, there's a divide over should Joel be dated pre-exilic or post-exilic. Okay, now how many in here know when the exile occurred? The exile, that's when we're referring to either pre-exilic or post-exilic, we're talking about an exile that occurred where Judah and Israel were led into captivity. Now, many of you probably remember that Assyria had smashed the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. And from that point on, we really lost the northern ten tribes. But the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted until the Babylonians came. So let me just do a little history. When we're talking about the exile, we're really talking about 586 B.C. But I want you to realize that the exile happened in three parts. So think about the year 605 B.C. Babylon is on the rise. Assyria, the former superpower of the world, is on the decline. In fact, they were ever since 612 B.C. when Nineveh was sacked. So what happens, the Babylonians beat up on the Assyrians at Nineveh. 
612 B.C. When you get to 605 B.C., the Assyrians have retreated to a place called Carchemish. How many in here have ever heard of the Battle of Carchemish? I think it's probably been on the History Channel a time or two. But typically when you see on your, on your scroll for the TV guide and it says the Battle of Carchemish, probably a lot of people just kind of yawn at that. But it's a significant battle because there the Babylonians become the world's superpower. The Assyrians who were joined by Pharaoh, the Egyptians, uh, their Pharaoh, by the way, was named Necho II. Necho thinks he's going to help the Assyrians beat back the Babylonians at this battle at Carchemish. Now, Carchemish is on the border of Syria and where modern-day Turkey is. So if you can picture that in your mind, that's where the battle happened. So when the Babylonians win that battle in 605, they absolutely devastate the Assyrians. There's no chance that the Assyrians are ever going to bounce back. The Babylonians are the superpower now. Well, they take that superpower status and they launch an invasion right away into Judah in 605 B.C. And at the time, you have a king on the throne of Judah named Jehoiakim. And just like Ahaz, he's a faithless king. He trusts in foreign gods and foreign powers rather than Yahweh. So God hands him over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians sack them and they bring the first deportees to Babylon. And so this is where Daniel, remember, and his friends are brought into Babylonian captivity. All that's in 605 B.C. Well, then Jehoiakim has a son named Jehoiakim, and he comes to power, and he also rebels against God, and he rebels against Babylon. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why is it? It's not bad to rebel against Babylon, but it is to rebel against God. Well, let me tell you why it's ultimately bad to do both. If you're going to rebel against God, the God who promises you preservation from your enemies, then it's a really bad idea, if you're a king of Judah, to rebel against Babylon. Okay, so if you rebel against God, you're not going to have any protection. Sure enough, the Babylonians come back, and in 597, they hit Jerusalem again. And this time, they place their own... Oops, I heard a noise. Is that... uh, Oh, that's our thing. Okay, good. I think somebody came through the door. Somebody came through the door. Okay, gotcha. I just was hoping it wasn't like a... We'll figure out how to shut that off. Okay. I hope it wasn't a missile lock on me. That's what it sounded like in those movies. You know, I've, I've got tone, Maverick. Should I shoot? You know? No, you're okay. All right, I'm okay. Good. So the Babylonians said in 597, they put in their own vassal king named Zedekiah. And Zedekiah follows in the footsteps of Jehoiakim, and he also doesn't trust God, and he rebels against Babylon. And so finally, Nebuchadnezzar has had enough, and he sends down the troops in 586 B.C. And because the wicked kings of Judah and the people of Judah didn't trust in Yahweh, he hands the people over into Babylonian exile. So when we're talking about the, the exile, and if you, by the way, if you're reading a commentary and someone says this is pre-exilic or post-exilic, they're talking about 586 B.C., That's kind of the demarcation line. But I wanted you to know that that deportation, that exile happened in stages. 605, 597, 586. Daniel again and his friends went away in the first deportation. Okay, so 586 B.C. So let me talk about the dating. There's a lot of scholars today that are proponents of what's called a post-exilic dating of the book of Joel. Now, post-exile would, of course, be after 586 B.C. B.C. Now, let me give you some evidence that they have for that. 
The first is they would claim that there's no mention of a northern kingdom. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't think that that merits much consideration simply because Joel the prophet was tasked not to preach to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, but he was tasked with preaching to the people of Judah. So the fact that there's no mention of the northern tribes, I don't think that that's a problem at all and shouldn't be conclusive. The second issue is that there are no reference, excuse me, there are references to priests but not kings. Now you might say, well, why is that important? Well, think about it. If it was written after the exile, you would expect that you wouldn't have any kings left because after all, the kings were all taken away into Babylonian captivity. So a lot of scholars look at that, that yes, there's a reference to priests, but there's not a reference to kings. That must mean they're in Babylonian captivity. However, I think that there's even a better explanation. First of all, there's many other prophets in the Old Testament that refer to no king and only to the priest, like Jonah does that, Nahum, and Habakkuk. So there's other minor prophets that are written prior to the exile that are never referring to any of the kings. But what's more is there's a particular situation in 841 B.C. to 835 B.C. that fits, I think, the book of Joel very nicely. How many in here have ever heard of Queen Athaliah? She was the only queen to ever rule over Judah. She was a very wicked woman. In fact, she was the daughter of Ahab. How many in here know that Ahab wasn't the greatest Israelite king? Well, Jezebel and Ahab had this daughter, Athaliah, and she ends up marrying a Judean king, Jehoram. Now, Jehoram, he ends up dying, and she ends up becoming queen and murdering all of the Davidic lineage except a little boy that ends up being hidden by the priests. So Athaliah is reigning at a time when, for all intents and purposes, between 841 and 835 B.C., you don't have kings. Only the priests are, in essence, ruling because Athaliah isn't legitimate. And so the priest, Jehoiada, he's the one who's actually running the show, and he's hiding the royal lineage, Joash, who was being hidden that Athaliah wanted to murder. So I think that that's perhaps a better timing indicator and perhaps more relevant than the fact that there's no reference to kings. There's also no mention to Assyria or Babylon. Now, some will take that and say, well, if Assyria and Babylon were the big boys on the block after the exile, at least Babylon was, you would expect the Babylonians to be mentioned. And because there's no mention of them, that must mean that the captivity has already occurred. That would be kind of the idea. But my response to that is I think Assyria and Babylon aren't mentioned because they simply weren't the superpower of the day. I think it was more likely that there was other superpowers. So I don't think that that has a lot going for it. The fourth reason why people date Joel after the exile is they claim that Joel 3.2 refers to the Babylonian invasion. And we're going to turn to that in a little bit. In fact, does somebody want to open their Bible and turn to Joel 3.2 and just read that? I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Thank you. So the claim there by these post-exilic scholars is that that reference in Joel 3.2 
is to the Babylonian invasion. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, we've got uh, Nancy. Yeah. Yeah. I had a question. Is Jehoshaphat considered to be the Kidron Valley? I, I believe it is. I believe that that's the best reference. Now, what's interesting is that term Jehoshaphat means Yahweh is judge. Um, Yahweh um, is the beginning part of it, but then you hear Shofet is the term for judge in Hebrew. So put together, it's Jehoshaphat or Yahweh Shofet. It's Yahweh as judge. So what to me is very interesting is I believe that that's a battle that occurs at the very end. So you would read about the same battle if you're a note taker. The battle that's being referred to in Joel 3 is the same final battle that we see in Revelation chapter 16 through 19 when all the nations are brought against Jerusalem. It's the same battle that Zechariah is referring to in Zechariah 14. So it's where God brings all of the nations, and the plural nations is important because it's not just Babylon. And by the way, I'll talk about more of this on the next slide. This is why I think the dating of the book of Joel is important. If the post-exilic dating is correct, which I don't think it is, it, I think, distracts from the risk of the Babylonian invasion in the near term, but also it distracts from the far-term day of the Lord, which is being referred to in Joel chapter 3. So my big point here on number 4, that these post-exilic scholars claim that Joel 3.2 refers to the Babylonian invasion, I don't think it does at all. I think it's referring to the final invasion at the very end of time, at the end of Daniel's 70th week, that's still in our future today. Again, you can read about that same invasion, Zechariah 14 and Revelation chapters 16 through 19. Okay? Number five, there's a claim that the mention of Greeks in Joel 3, 6 must imply a post-exilic situation. The, the logic there would be, look, there's a reference to Greeks, and we know that the Greeks certainly were around Israel after the exile, but not really before Therefore, the reference to the Greeks in Joel 3.6 must mean that this is written in a post-exilic time period. The answer to that, I'm going to wait till the next slide, but I'm going to show you that the Greeks had a lot of interactions with the Israelites and Judah, even as early as the 9th century. In fact, after the destruction of Troy in the 1100s BC, Greece had ascended to the point where they were sending out people all the time. They were on the move. And I'm going to show you evidence when we get to the next slide. In, in Joel 3, 6, there's a reference to the sons of Javan. That's the reference to Greece. They removed the people of Israel far away. Well, after the exile, the people of Greece weren't far away. They were very near to the people of Israel. They had inundated, inundated much of Israel. They had infiltrated much of the promised land. So I'm going to show you that Joel 3.6 makes better sense prior to the exile in the 9th century than it does after the exile. So to me, I'm a proponent of the pre-exilic dating of Joel. And as I lay this out for you, I just want to show you that I really, um, or let me declare this to you, I could be wrong in this. But I'm giving you the best evidence that I have. I'm not really willing to die on the hill of the dating of the book of Joel. It's very difficult. There's good scholars on both sides. But I'm calling balls and strikes as I see them. Like any good umpire, I'm saying this is the way I see it. So again, you can have somebody who has a different view. doesn't mean that they're a heretic by any way. All right, number one. Here's the pre-exilic proponents. 
This is some good evidence, I think. First of all, there's a mention of Phoenicia, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom. Why is that important? Because they're all 9th century superpowers. And I use superpower in quotes because they're not like the United States is today that dominant, nor were they like Babylon, who became very dominant. But they were the power brokers of their day. And notice there's a mention of a lot of them because the power was more equally broken up. Okay. Now, when we're talking about Phoenician power, of course, we're talking about Sidon, we're talking about Tyre, we're talking about city-states. Now, let me remind you, where did Ahab, uh, his wife, come from? Jezebel. Well, she was a Phoenician. Okay, so it's at that time that you have a lot of syncretism, which I think is the big issue in the book of Joel. So I think the ninth century fits very well, actually, for the dating of the book of Joel. Okay, Number two, the references to the priest may fit again the, again the ninth century situation when Athaliah usurped her son. So let me just mention this real quick. And I want to get the name. Oh, yeah, it was Joash. So Athaliah is this wicked queen who murders all of David's descendants. Now, why would she do that? Well, because God promised that a Davidic descendant would sit on the throne forever. So she's trying to usurp the promises of God. Well, there was a righteous priest named Jehoiada. And Jehoiada ends up taking Joash, who was very young at the time, and he hides him away from the wrath of this wicked queen. And again, Athaliah is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. That shows you where her morality came from. And she does the same wickedness that they did. So in a sense, the whole Davidic kingdom comes down to whether or not this Joash is going to survive, and he does. But at that time, it's Jehoiada the priest and the other priests who are really running the show. And I think this explains then why when we read the book of Joel, there's reference to priests, but not to kings. Why? Because the priests were in authority, not the kings. Okay, now, let's look at Joel 3.6. Joel 3.6 mentions inhabitants of Israel being carried far away by the Greeks. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Joel 3.4-6. through 6. Now, to me, this is very telling of a pre-exilic date for Joel. I'll show you why. Joel 3, 4 through 6. So notice here's an indictment at the enemies of Judah and Israel at the time. And then this is extended, of course, to the final battles. Joel 3, 4 through 6, it says, Moreover, this is God speaking through Joel, What are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Now, does everyone notice there in verse 6 the term far? Notice the reference here is that the Greeks removed the Israelites far from their territory. The term in Hebrew there, racha, or rachak, is the way you would say it. Well, the idea that they were removed far would imply that the Greeks were far away. That is really well suited for the 9th century, around the the 800 B.C. range. But it is not well suited for a time period around 586 or after. Why? Because the Greeks had infiltrated the Promised Land at that point. So to me, if there's any conclusive evidence for the dating of the book of Joel, I really think you have it here 
in Joel 3.6. I don't think it makes any sense that the Greeks removed them far away when after the exile, the Greeks were really within the promised land itself. Does that make sense? So to me, that shows probably a pre-exilic writing, or I'm sorry, history. Now, let me read to you something that Dwayne Garrett wrote. He has a great commentary in the book of Joel. Let me read this to you. He says this, he says, quote, In reality, Greeks were a seafaring people who colonized the west coast of Asia Minor long before 586 B.C., and one need not be surprised to find mention of them in pre-exilic text. What is significant is not whether they appear, but in what role they appear. In Joel 3.6, the prophet assailed the Philistines and Phoenicians for taking Jews as slaves and selling them to the Greeks in order to move them far, quote-unquote, from their homeland. What is important here is that the Greeks are presented as a distant people. This would tend to favor an earlier over a later date when Greeks in significant numbers spread across the Near East as merchants and mercenaries and would not have been regarded as distant, unquote. A very good quote from Dwayne Garrett. Does that make sense? Any comments or questions on that? So I think if there's any passage in the scriptures in Joel that shows us more of a pre-exilic dating, I think Joel 3.6 is it. Now let me give you number four here. Evidence suggests Amos borrowed from Joel. Now remember, Amos is a prophet to Israel. And he is somewhat a contemporary of Isaiah, although he lives a little bit before. But let me cite the passages. I want you to turn to them, if you will. Turn first to Joel 3.16. If you have your books open to Joel, your Bibles. Turn to Joel 3.16. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. There's just a phrase in there, if you'll find it. It says, notice it says, the Lord will roar from Zion. In my notes, I jotted down, that's also found in Amos 1-2. So Joel 3-16 and Amos 1-2 are saying the same thing. You have the same phrase. Yahweh will roar from Zion. The Lord will roar from Zion. Okay, so some contend that Amos must have borrowed from Joel. Are you with me? All right, let me give you another one. Joel 3-18, two verses later. There's another phrase. Notice in there it says, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. That phrase is also found in Amos 9.13. So here's the conjecture. Scholars say Amos, who was around 750 B.C. to 715, 700 B.C., right in there, around the same time as Isaiah, prophesying to the northern tribes of Israel that, they, he, that he must have borrowed from Joel... Therefore, Joel must have written prior to him. That's the logic. The only problem with that is it's often difficult to determine who borrowed from whom. Perhaps it was Joel who borrowed from Amos, not the other way around. But let me give you a hint that I think the scholars are right that Amos was borrowing from Joel. And here's how we can do it. We're going to do it in a roundabout way. Turn your Bibles to Joel 3.10. Joel 3.10. And what I'm going to show you is that I think Isaiah is certainly borrowing from Joel. So follow the logic. Don't miss this. I'm going to show you that Isaiah is borrowing from Joel. And if Isaiah and Amos are contemporaries, well, then Amos is borrowing from Joel as well. Does that make sense? Amos and Isaiah are tied to the same time period. So if we can prove that Isaiah is borrowing from Joel, then Amos must be borrowing from Joel. Does that make sense? Okay, 
Let me show you the evidence. Joel 3.10, notice this phrase, and it's such an interesting phrase when we're going to study this because it has to do with this last battle where all the nations are brought against Jerusalem. But notice in Joel 3.10, it says, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. So at the end of time, God is going to be saying to all the nations, take your plowshares, beat them into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Well, many of us have probably had that passage in our mind from Isaiah 2.4. When the Messiah comes and reigns in Jerusalem for the thousand years, the spears, it's the opposite. The spears are going to be beat into pruning hooks and the swords into plowshares. In fact, look at Isaiah 2.4. I'll, I'll let you turn your Bible there. Let's take some time. So Joel 3.10 is saying, no, it, it's the opposite. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Isaiah says the opposite of that. When the Messiah reigns, the nations are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Notice Isaiah 2.4. This is what happens when Yahweh rules over the world as, as Christ reigns in Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 4 it says, He will judge between the nations, will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So, right there, that's the answer to the issue of war in our day. So, if you're a peacenik, realize that peace will one day come, but it only comes when the Prince of Peace comes. So think about Bertrand Russell. Remember that stupid uh, peace symbol that you see so prevalent today? There's a peace symbol, and if you really look at it, it looks like an upside-down broken cross. Well, Bertrand Russell was a Marxist, and the Marxists believed that through their efforts of taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots, they're going to bring a utopian and a peace to the earth. So they're going to do it by works. But what the Bible says is that it's going to happen by God's grace. Peace comes... When Christ comes, it's not going to come about through human effort. So until Christ comes, the role of government is to restrain evil. And our culture, the battle is, what do we want government to do? To ours, let's boil it down, we as conservatives typically want the government to restrain evil. The Marxists want it to redistribute wealth. And it can, it's really only designed, in my opinion, to restrain evil. That's it. Genesis 9-6, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. That was the institution of human government. Okay, so that's the issue. But in Isaiah, it's promising a day where Christ is going to rule. He will be the government. And that's why there's going to be peace. But notice, Joel is saying something opposite at the last battle. Now, why is Joel, when he says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, why is he probably the original? Well, more than likely, that was a saying that went across the land because the people of Israel had a militia, as it were, comprised of people who lived on the land. And when there was a call to battle, they really did have to take their implements and they really had to make them into instruments of war. So more than likely, Joel, in his saying, was something that was... Um, do you remember the old, um, in World War II, you'd see the posters, Uncle Sam wants you. And do you remember, and buy war bonds, and you buy them, and we'll fly them, and there was all these war, well, that's kind of a saying from them. That was one of their war posters. 
Are you with me? You're going to have to take your, your uh, plowshare and beat it into a sword and your pruning hook into a spear. We need you. So that was more than likely the original. What was shocking in Isaiah's day when he's promising that the Messiah comes is that all of a sudden you're no longer going to have to take your swords and beat it into, or your plowshares and beat it into swords. You're going to do the opposite. Because when Messiah reigns, you're really going to have peace. And so no longer will you see the signs Uncle Sam wants you. Why? Because Christ does it all. That's the idea. That's the peace that he's going to bring. I'm sorry, I saw a hand up there. But Paul, I'm sorry, hold on, we'll get a mic to you. Micah must also have been a contemporary, I believe, in... Um Yeah, Micah 4.3, you're exactly yes, right. right. He says the same thing, absolutely right. So if you're a note-taker, Paul's exactly right. Micah 4.3, he also cites, just as Isaiah did, to hammer the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. So again, Joel probably had the original. Isaiah and Micah are building off them. Now again, what that means is because Amos is more of a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos is probably also borrowing from Joel. So anyway, the whole point, I think, is Joel is being borrowed from. That's the idea. Therefore, he must be before these other prophets, more than likely 9th century. Now, let me give you one that I don't find necessarily too compelling, but I'll tell you kind of an interesting story. Number five, some scholars say Joel's style is more like the pre-exilic writers. Whenever you have a scholar says, well, Paul couldn't have written this because his style is different than what we see here. Don't buy into it, because oftentimes writers will change their style according to the need of what they're writing. If I wrote a letter to my mom, it's going to be looking a lot different than it would be if I wrote a letter to my chief pilot when I was an airline pilot. Or Bob uh, writing to his mother or your family is going to look a lot different than his critical issues commentary. Are you with me? And and all of you, you know what it's like. You all have your professions where what you write in your profession is probably going to look different, different style. But I'm going to to share with you something where we can tell in one of the prophets something of the prophet when it relates to style. Let me tell you a little story. How many in here have ever heard of liberal scholars trying to say that there are really two Isaiahs? That there's a first Isaiah and what they call a deutero-Isaiah. And that's more of the left wing. What the left doesn't like, the, the liberal scholars, is they don't like that there's predictive prophecy in the Bible. Because if there's predictive prophecy in the Bible, that shows that there's a God in heaven who knows the future and that this, in fact, is his word. So they don't like it. So what they try to do is they break Isaiah into two parts. There's first Isaiah and second Isaiah. The problem with that is David, most of you in here have heard of King David, obviously. Well, David's name was spelled one way prior to the exile, and it was spelled a different way after the exile. Before the exile... It was spelled Daleth Vav Daleth. But after the exile, and by the way, those are the consonants. But after the exile, there was, da, it was Daleth Vav Yod Daleth. There was a Yod added. Okay, now what's very interesting is all the way through the book of Isaiah, you have the pre-exilic spelling of David's name. So the liberal scholars try to claim, well, the first Isaiah was some character who lived prior to the exile, but the second Isaiah was some character who lived after the exile. Well, the rebuttal to that is if that's true, 
then why is David's name spelled throughout the entire book of Isaiah with the pre-exilic spelling? I think that would be a, something that if you were trying to forge something, you'd probably overlook that. More than likely, it shows that there was indeed one author, and of course, that's Isaiah pre-exilic. Yes? One thing liberals have in common is the desire to take the supernatural out of the Bible. Yes. And that means you have to remove predictive prophecy that actually comes to fulfillment. Yes. And so there was a lot of work done trying to throw everything much, much later. Yeah. And assuming that maybe the Christian church concocted all these things. Right, right. But the problem with that theory was it debunked by a lot of discoveries, including the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. And many of the ancient documents now are found dated way before the liberals claimed the Christians or somebody doctored it all. Yes. And what, what it turns out is that these ancient people were very accurate about what they said and about what happened. Yeah. And the Bible's been proven reliable. Right. It's, well, so sorry. I don't know if there's still... I think a lot of that's kind of gotten boring because you don't yeah. hear as much about the higher critical analysis. Yeah, well said. Yeah, the more we dig, the more it proves the yeah, Bible. Yeah, I mean, early yeah. 20th century, that was a big deal. Yeah. The rationalists, but it's gotten to be really passe because there's too many uh, things that have proved them wrong. Well said. And by the way, that, that's why Bob has really been fighting the battle in the 21st century. Think about this. The 20th century, the 19th and the 20th century, even prior to that a little bit, but the, the liberal scholars are saying your Bible is an error. That's what their claim was. Your Bible is wrong. Well, we got very good at showing them, no, our Bible isn't wrong. And the more we dig and the more you see archaeology, all of a sudden, we were proving over and over again that the Bible was right. So what they did then is in the latter part of the 20th century into the 21st century is they changed tactics. It's not that your Bible is wrong. What post-modernity is saying now is you can't know your Bible. You can't ever come to a true interpretation. Why? Because of Immanuel Kant, he said that we are always locked into what he called the noumenal world, excuse me, the phenomenal world, the world as it appears, we can never access the noumenal world, the world as it is. That's the root of all post-modernity. Immanuel Kant laid the foundation in the 1700s for post-modernity saying, you can never come to a true interpretation. And so I remember in seminary, I would have to, the whole debate is whether or not the author defines the meaning of the text or does the reader See, we as conservative Christians are saying the, the author determines the meaning of the text, not the, the, not the reader. It's the writer, not the reader. Okay, now why does that matter? Well, when I was in seminary, you have all these postmoderns who are saying, well, no, no, it's the writer, or excuse me, the reader who deti- determines the meaning of the text. And I had to read this man named Jacques Derrida. He was a postmodern deconstructionist from France. And he writes this whole book about how the reader determines the meaning. So in my paper, it was the easiest paper to ever write, I said, yeah, I believe Jacques Derrida believes that the author determines the meaning. Because if Jacques Derrida is right and the reader determines the meaning, I'm the reader, and I can define him any way I want. And therefore, I'm claiming Jacques Derrida says the author determines the meaning. And the only thing my postmodern professor could say is touché. 
He said he realized I was right. If, if Jacques Derrida is right, then I can make the text anything I want. If my wife writes to me a, a note, says, go get milk, eggs, and bread, that's my grocery list, and I come back with a six-pack of root beer and a candy bar, and I say, well, that's just the way I interpreted it. Are, am I going to get away with that? No, because she's the author of that grocery list, and she grounded the meaning of it. See, that's really the issue. By the way, today, the left does the same thing with the Constitution. They read into it anything they want. Why? Because of postmodernity. The reader determines the meaning rather than the intent of the authors. What conservatives like Scalia and Thomas and others who are strict constructionists are saying, no, it's not the reader who determines the meaning. It's the writer. It's the author. Dear brothers and sisters, that's what Bob has been fighting. He's been fighting a postmodern group that's saying that the reader determines the meaning. Bob has been showing, no, it's the author. I was blessed to have the opposite kind of teacher. When I was in seminary, I had yeah. Robert Stein. Yes. And his book is still, I think, the best one out there on hermeneutics. You Amen. can still get it on Amazon. Yeah. Some of my readers asked about that. But there's also an insidious evangelical version of yep. the reader determines the meaning that I still have to fight yeah. because I get emails from people who hold to it yeah. and it goes like this well since the Bible is from the Holy Spirit therefore the Holy Spirit tells the reader what it means uh-huh. okay so they're putting they're taking the inspiration away from the authors of scripture and giving it to the reader of Scripture. Very good, but it yeah. sounds pious. Yeah, it does. It sounds very okay. pious. And one guy who did that, who's very famous, is Oswald Chambers. And so people read Oswald Chambers and think he's some great Christian writer. And he's the one who denied that the author determines the meaning and said the Holy Spirit-inspired reader determines the meaning. And he allegorized the Bible. So I, tell, so I wrote an article about that. Then every once in a while, I get a really nasty email. How dare you question Oswald Chamber? He's the greatest pi- <laughs> And I, my, my rebuttal is, I didn't say he isn't pious. I just said he's wrong. All right. <laughs> okay. And, and then often they have to back down. Because I'll say to the person who's upset that I critique Oswald Chambers, I said, well, if you are a parent and you taught your children the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. And your kids stole anyhow. And the kids said, and you said, well, why'd you do it? Well, they had something better than what I had, so I took their thing. And would you allow your child to determine the meaning of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't do that because God said it. So well, that's exactly what Oswald Chambers did yes. with his reader Holy Spirit-inspired reader determines meaning. And you think he's some great pious guy, and he attacked the very foundation of the Bible itself. Yeah. How's that pious? And, you know, everyone so far that I've debated has backed down. Yeah. Because I quoted him a whole paragraph where he claimed that. So we got to be careful when we read these Watchman Nee, Oswald Chambers, uh, evangelical pietism, because many of them say, well, the Holy Spirit tells me the Bible means thus and so. It's just post-modernity exactly. dressed up as evangelical. Right, yeah, and piety, right? Yeah, I, I just to add one other thing, there's a, a Lutheran theologian named Todd Green. Okay, I'll repeat that, Todd Green. And he has written a, um, 
it's a kind of like an interfaith dialogue thing called My Neighbor is a Muslim. Mm. And this is being promoted and taught in Lutheran churches all over. And in that, he, he's trying to do a syncretism type of a thing. Yeah. But he's in the beginning, it's like, okay, what is Islam? And, and, and they give all of the sugar-coated stuff. And then he says, if you were to ask a bunch of Christians what it means to be a Christian, you know, I don't remember what the number was. If you asked a dozen Christians, you'd get 12 different answers. So yeah. it's the same thing, you know. It's, it's, the, it's whatever it means to the, to the person. And, and this is just a, right. it's a poisonous subjective. thing. Well, yeah, well said. Yeah, that's part of the postmodernity. We, we are set up for syncretism in America by the postmodern movement. Well said. I'm sorry, I got us off on a tangent. Oh, yeah, really quick, just yeah. uh, every leftist argument defeats itself. You know, the, there are no absolutes. Is it, you always ask them, is that absolutely right, true? Right, exactly. It's a so in a nutshell, argument. that's all. You know, that's that can right. be used for every leftist argument. Yeah, exactly. Well said, Ed. Thank you. Yeah, good. Very good. Um, yeah. So anyway, my my point in getting into the the dating of Isaiah and some of those issues is if Isaiah is borrowing from Joel and Amos is a contemporary of Isaiah, then Amos and Isaiah are borrowing from Joel. Joel must be prior to both of them, therefore it must be pre-exilic. That's my argument. Now, let me explain why I think this matters. Why does the dating of the book of Joel help us to interpret it? Let me explain why. You're going to see three judgments come upon Judah, and if you don't know when this is dated, and, I'm, and just roughly, you don't have to know the exact year, but it's, it, it's, it's very difficult to understand. Let me explain what the judgments are. It's threefold. Number one, a locust judgment. There's been a tremendous locust judgment that comes upon Judah that is a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord. Joel the prophet sees it as the wrath of God come upon the land. And by the way, he can say this because he's an authoritative prophet who's speaking on behalf of God. And so he knows this is the wrath of God come because of their syncretism, because they've rejected Yahweh for other gods. But the locust judgment is a foreshadowing of an army that's going to come one day from the north and this army is going to be like the locusts in their destructive power. It'll be an army that covers the land and destroys everything in its path. So the short-term locust judgment that was concurrent in his day is a foreshadowing of this near-term army that was going to come and do the same thing if they didn't repent. But that judgment which I think are the Babylonians because they act in that way. And that's why I like to see this dated prior to the Babylonian captivity. That Babylonian army that comes down from the north is a foreshadowing of the future day of the Lord that will one day come when all the nations gather against Jerusalem that we see, in, for example, in Joel chapter 3. All right, so locusts foreshadow the Babylonians the Babylonians foreshadow the future nations. And what's the message? Repent and believe. And if you'll repent and believe, you get Yahweh as salvation. Isn't it interesting? We just read a text from Joel 3 that God is going to bring all the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means Yahweh Shofate, Yahweh is judge. Isn't it interesting? All the nations, all the heathens, the pagans who rejected Jesus, Jesus' name Yeshua is Yahweh's salvation. But because they reject him, they're going to get Yahweh as their judge. In fact, that's where they're going to be brought to the valley that means that. And they're going to be entered into by the judgment of God. 
So you either get Yahweh as salvation, Yeshua, or you get brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Yahweh is your judge. So anyway, that's why I think the dating of Joel matters. The locusts foreshadow the Babylonians. The Babylonians foreshadow the future day of the Lord. Well, if this is written after the Babylonian captivity, then you don't have a future Babylonian invasion. That's the problem. Okay, and again, I think the evidence is fairly clear. But again, I, um, I could be wrong, but that's the way I understand the dating of the book of Joel. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about the structure of Joel. I want to talk and give you three views. So what I'm going to do is think about you're in an aircraft. I'm going to give you the first, the overall uh, 30,000 foot view. Then we're going to take a near view and a far view. Let's look at the broad view. This is the overhead 30,000 foot view of Joel. Joel 1, verse 1 through 2.11 is about the judgment on Judah. Joel 2.12 through 17 has to do with their repentance Joel 2.18 through 3.21 is about salvation. In essence, that follows a lot of the life of the Israelites. Judgment, repentance, salvation. Or sin, sorrow, salvation is the way some have put it. And by the way, this is kind of the way it works for us. We're all under the wrath of God. One day we repent, and then we have salvation. Okay, but that's the grand overview of what the book of Joel is about. Now, let me break it into the near term. Let me talk about the prophecies regarding Joel and his day. In other words, what was in the immediate future for the people of Judah? This is the near view. First of all, you have this judgment. It's a locust plague. Again, that was just devastating. Chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through verse 20. And again, this locust plague is a promise that God sent upon them because they had broken his covenant. And you're going to read that, by the way, later in our introduction here. Because remember, in Deuteronomy 28, God said, look, if you go after other gods and you disobey me, I'm not going to give you any agricultural produce. I'm going to take it from your land. Well, sure enough, they disobeyed him. God sends the locusts. But the locusts are a mere foreshadowing of this coming northern army. And again, I believe it's the Babylonians, ultimately. And that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So as bad as the locust plague is, if you don't repent, God's going to send this northern army who are going to be like the locusts and cover your land. And by the way, the Assyrians do that to a certain degree, but the Babylonians ultimately fulfill it. Okay, and again, that was in their near future if they didn't repent. Well, then when you get to this transition, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 19, you have this promise of repentance, and this is something that Yahweh's going to grant this is something that Yahweh is going to bring about. He's going to circumcise them, their heart. He's going to allow them to repent. So then what you're going to see then is there's going to be a forgiveness. And one day this northern army that menaced them is going to be destroyed. Joel 2.20. Why? Because they repented and they came back in their sorrow to Yahweh. And then there's going to be forgiveness. The locust damage is going to be restored. So notice the chiasm. The first part of it is judgment, transition, repentance, the second part, forgiveness. That's the way it looks. So what are we to do? What's the main message? How are we to respond from the book of Joel? Repent and believe. That's the message. And it's always, by the way, typically the message of the prophets. Come back to Yahweh. Repent. Flee from your false gods. Flee from your idolatry and your syncretism. Okay, now, let me give you the far view. This is looking at Joel. So Joel is prophesying to their immediate needs but he's also looking forward to a glorious day. And so this is about our future as well. This is the far view. So you have this judgment on the northern army in 220. 
Well, then you have grace. And what God is going to do is he's going to send rain upon the land. It's very shocking when you read it because all of a sudden you see this northern army destroyed and then God sends his grace in the form of rain on the land. You're like, well, what's that about? Well, it's about him giving their produce that was taken away by the locusts. But what's very interesting is that's a foreshadowing of that famous passage that we read at Pentecost, Joel 2, 28 through 32. The grace is extended one day by the pouring out of the Spirit. So let me pull up my pointer. Notice here this grace. This judgment is in the short term. In other words, it's going to happen when the Babylonians are destroyed by the Medo-Persians. Right? Grace, rain is going to be sent upon the land. That's in the near term as well. But this foreshadows the far term, God sending his grace and the pouring out of the Spirit. And there's going to be a future judgment in the far term as well, where all the nations are brought to Jerusalem and they're destroyed when the Messiah comes in his splendor. So isn't it interesting to note that here you have wrath followed by grace, but right now you and I are living during a time of grace followed by wrath. Does that make sense? They were living in a time of wrath, which would be followed by grace. During the church age, you and I are living during a time of grace followed by judgment. So right now, just because you have people who are violating the word of the Lord and they don't immediately perish, lightning doesn't strike them, doesn't mean that this time of judgment isn't coming. The time of God's grace is finite for people to receive it by faith. Either we die and we enter into the wrath of God apart from Christ, or he comes again and that happens. Yes, uh, Scott. Sorry, we'll get you on tape there. I wonder if you could clarify something. Um, the battle that you're talking about at the end of the tribulation. Yeah. Is is that Armageddon or is the Armageddon actually a battle at the end of the millennium? No, um, Armageddon is part of that last battle at the end of Daniel's 70th week. And the, and so the, the, and the battle yeah. at the end of the millennium? Yep. Is, what, is, what do we refer to that's that That's called as? the Battle of Gog and Magog. Oh, okay. Yep, absolutely. So that's one um, where Messiah is reigning upon the land for a thousand years, but you still have people who are unbelievers, and Satan incites them to one last rebellion. It's the most lopsided battle of all time. Christ just calls down fire upon them. And then after that, they're, they're brought into the white throne judgment where they're going to be judged whether they go, or, well, excuse me, they're going to be judged uh, to hell. There's no option for salvation for them at that point. So, yeah. But one thing I want to point out here on this, thanks for that question too, by the way, Scott. I want to point out this, that notice here when you have this grace, the pouring out of the Spirit, the pouring out of the Spirit is what fundamentally gives us the last days. Now, why is that important? Because the Apostle Peter understands the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost as ushering in the last days. So if you look at the structure in the far view, you have the near term that happens during the time, as it were, of the Old Testament. But then when you get to Joel 2.28 through 32, it's a transition to the last days. The last days, a lot of people say, well, the last days are when Israel was reestablished in 1948. That's a common evangelical view. No, 
The last days began with the first advent of Jesus Christ. We know that from the book of Hebrews. In many ways, in many portions, the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. The last days began with the first advent of Christ. Christ is the one who sends out the spirit. So again, think about that. Joel 2.28 all the way to the end is about the last days, the days that you and I are living in. Okay? So with that, we got a little bit of time left. Let's talk about the theology of Joel. We'll do a little bit of reading here. The theology of Joel, it's really first and foremost about the covenant. God judges covenant breaking. Now, where do we see the conditions and stipulations of the covenant? We see it in Deuteronomy 28. Remember, there you have the blessings and the curses. The blessings were announced at Mount Gerizim and the cursings at Mount Ebal, if I remember correctly. Right? In fact, I want you to read. If, will somebody read Deuteronomy 28, 8 through 12? Somebody could read that. We're going to hear about the blessings God promises for obeying him. And the reason this is important is when you read the book of Joel and you read about the curses, you'll say, well, exactly. this is just God being faithful. He said he would do that if they disobeyed, if they left him. And sure enough, he is. If someone would read Deuteronomy 28, verses 8 through 12. Does anybody have that? Brian, thank you. Deuteronomy 28, 8. The Lord... The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. Okay, so very good. So notice in the beginning when you started reading in that 28.8, there's this blessings of agriculture. They're going to have produce. Um, yeah, Bob. What I, love about, oh, what I love about Deuteronomy 27.28, yeah. in the original happening, they were actually in two different mountains. Yeah, antiphonal, yeah, back and forth. And they had to, you know, one was where the blessings would be read. Yeah. And this is what God will do. And the other one, uh, it was Gerizim and uh, Ebal, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So on Mount Gerizim, they blessed the people. In Ebal, they read the curse. curse. Yeah. Just imagine if you were there. Yeah. You How get powerful this, that is. Or you get this. You get this. <laughs> or you get this. And, of course, when you heard it, you would think, well, I want the blessing. Right. Right. But then Moses said, now, after you're cursed... <laughs> Yeah. They're, they're actually going yeah, to rebel. Exactly. Right, right, he knew they were. Yeah, so think about the power of that. This is a huge choir. You have two, Mount Gerizim, you have the blessings, Mount Ebal, you have the curses. And think about how thunderous that would be, what an impact that would have. But, and I want you to notice when Brian read what he read, the beginning of the blessings is, I will make your barns burst with, with uh, how does it, how, what did it say, 28.8? With produce, you're going to have you're going to have food. You're going to have produce of the land. He's going to bless them. So, what is it about this locust invasion? Then, why does God send that? Because it's part of the curse. Because they went after other gods. You see, so He wasn't going to bless them. Um, Brian, can you read again? Read the curses. This is from Ebal. This would be uh, Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty through twenty-four. 
if I have my thing written. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account, on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. There you go. Wow. So pestilence, pestilence normally follows famine. Why do they have famine? Well, because of the locusts. Why do they have locusts? Because they broke covenant. Therefore, God promised cursing. So the reason I want you to get your hands around this is when we look at Joel, Joel is just telling them, look, God promised that he was going to do this to you. If you disobey and disbelieve, you get his curses. But if you believe and obey, you get his blessings. Now, let me read to you. Turn your Bibles to Joel 1, 15 through 20. And you'll see that here Joel is connecting the judgment to the promises of God. You'll see a lot of similar language. Joel 1, 15 through 20. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as a destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are tore down, for the grain is dried up. Stop there. Notice in verse 17, it sounds very similar to what God had promised if they were obedient, their barns and their storehouses would overflow. Deuteronomy 28.8. But this is the reversal. Why? It's the cursings. Because they disobeyed. I keep going. Verse 18, notice it says, How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Yahweh, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pan for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Can you see then why later when he sends rain upon the land, that's a sign of blessing? He's going to give them the curses by fire, blessings by rain that restores the land. But those blessings by rain are foreshadowing of the day when he pours out the Spirit. I also want you to notice here in Joel 1.15, notice it says, For the day of the Lord is near. Joel understands the day of the Lord is a time in which God judges his people for their sins, or he saves them because of the repentance. And so the day of the Lord is always a judgment and salvation. Judgment upon the enemies of God but salvation for his people. And this near-term day of the Lord that happens in Joel's day, it is a foreshadowing of the future day of the Lord. And that's one thing I think confuses a lot of people. They'll read this and they'll say, well, wait a minute, I thought the day of the Lord was in our future. How can he speak it as if it's happening then? Because there's always a foreshadowing in the near term. So that's a concept we have to understand the prophets. There's always a near and a far Babylon is judged, for example, in Isaiah 13 because God was faithful to his people. He restores them. He judges Babylon in the near term, but that's a foreshadowing that one day in the far term, God is also going to judge Babylon at the Battle of Armageddon. So there's always a near and a far. Now with that, I'm out of time, but we'll continue the rest of this introduction. We'll get into some theology and we'll hopefully open up the text itself then next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your book of Joel. We thank you for the prophet, what he wrote to them, to return them to repentance and faith. We do pray, Lord, that we would be people of faith, 
uh, preparing for the future day of the Lord as well. We pray for Bob DeWay as he teaches us this morning. We pray for our service that it would be pleasing unto your ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.